at the moment, uh, we're working on we being me and Zach Hodgkinson, the video guy who makes the videos for Mary Creek. We're working on a new promo video for Mary Creek because um, the one we made was made before we'd started the church and it talks about we're excited about starting this new church, but now we're 18 months in, we thought we'd make, better make a new one. And uh, <clears throat> the question that we're exploring in our pre-production phase is, um, uh, you know, we push this kind of idea at Mary Creek that we're our community and if you come become part of our church that you can um, you know experience great community but the question is what's the difference between the community that we offer at a church at Mary Creek Anglican and all the other kind, kinds of communities that you can get in the inner north of Melbourne because if you just walk down you know any of the kind of shopping strips of the inner north you'll see posters everywhere promoting community this community that and, uh, you know, the Yarra News, the Darabin News that comes out as well. It's always talking about community hubs. You know, what's the difference between the Preston Football Club and the community there and the community here? Or the difference between Fitzroy High, the community in that school and the community here? Or the community you get hanging out on a Thursday night at the Wesleyan in High Street, Northcote, and the community you get here? <coughs> Obviously, there would be key differences of doctrine, <laughs> but um, apart from the obvious religious and theological differences, are we claiming at Mary Creek that you can't somehow get better friend, friends or something, you know? Well, what we're going to do this morning is look at Ephesians 4 and these first six verses and think about what it tells us about the uniqueness of Christian community with an emphasis on the last part of the word community, which is unity. Um, and, and, and see what the implications are for us as we think about this theme for the whole series, which is how God changes us. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, um, Paul's been telling uh, the church in Ephesus how God has been achieving his agenda for eternity in his actions in history. So he's saying God has been doing something new. He's been creating something new. He sent Jesus who died and rose for sinners and now he's creating a new kind of community, a new kind of people. Now in the words of John Stott, Paul is moving from a new society to new standards in this part of Ephesians 4. He's talking about from a new doctrine to new duty, from mind-stretching cosmic theology to how do we live this out then, this, this new thing that God is doing? How do we live it out in our daily impl- for our daily implications? That's the question that Paul is exploring. He starts off by saying in verse 1 that he, he's a prisoner for the Lord and he begs them to live worthy lives. He's a prisoner for the Lord in multiple ways. He's literally a prisoner. He's a prisoner for Christ in that while he's in jail, he's serving Christ, but also he's a prisoner of Christ in that he literally is captivated by Jesus in everything that he does. And it's in this context, as being a prisoner for the Lord, that he begs them to live lives worthy of the calling which they have. This new kind of life that they've been called to has two main qualities. Firstly, it is a community with no ethnic divisions. There are Jews and Gentiles, yet they are one single family. 
And they're also a holy people in that they're set apart from the secular world to belong to God. And he's going to make these two points in these six verses about um, the life that they've got to live and the oneness God wants for the church, this kind of unity. And he says, basically, first of all, pursue good godly character and that will bring about unity. And secondly, the unity that you will have is going to spring out from the nature of God and who God is. The unity of God. So let's have a look at that. First of all, this idea of building unity by pursuing godly character. Paul writes in verse 2, be, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. And there's, So there's five characteristics there of the pursuit of godly character. There's humility, there's gentleness, there's patience, mutual forbearance and love. Um, sounds like the fruit of the Spirit, doesn't it? And his argument is basically this. If you pursue godly character, this will actually create a culture of godly character in your church, which is a good thing. And you will encourage others to godly character and this will build unity. Now, I could unpack all five of those godly characters, but I'm just going to focus on one for this morning and you'll see how it kind of works. And that is humility. I'm going to look at how pursuing humility will actually encourage others to humility and build unity. Now, hum humility might seem like an obvious characteristic to pursue for a Christian, for us, but wasn't obvious in, in the days when this letter to the Ephesian church was written because in the ancient world, um, according to Greek thinking, um, they associated the word humility with um, slaves and sort of being in a lowly position. This was a, a shame and honour culture. Humility meant being submissive in a kind of lowly way and they didn't associate anything good with that. But Jesus came and didn't he? And he showed a profound... He flipped it all around and he showed how um, there's something divinely um, powerful about being in the position of the humble person, um, the lowly person. And he made this a central ethic for his disciples. So when the church set out, they were actually embracing this kind of upside-down version of power. And, and Paul uses this word humility. Uh, specifically, it means lowliness of mind. Um, the kind of empty mind that you're supposed to have which leads you to become a servant. In the letter to the Philippians, he says a similar thing. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Now, I don't know if you've thought much about humility. Um, it's actually quite a beautiful idea, I think. True humility. Um, in the last few weeks, we've been thinking about Nepal because of the two tragic earthquakes and the crisis which is there. Someone who showed great humility to the Nepalese uh, was the famous cli climber Sir Edmund Hillary who uh, was the first white man that we know of that climbed um, Mount Everest with his Sherpa Tenzin Norgay. Um, and he became very famous in the 1950s when he, when he first did this. And he, he was lifted up in New Zealand, where he's from, and became the High Commissioner to India, um, Bangladesh and Nepal. And he received Britain's highest honour, the Order of the Garter, 
Um, but Hillary uh, used his, his status as the famous um, climber to actually uh, serve the Nepalese people. And he set up a trust, the Himalayan Trust, in 1960, which built hospitals and airfields and schools. And uh, he actually became known as a humble person. It's sort of a weird idea, famous for being humble, but even the Encyclopedia Britannica recorded him um, and referenced his humility. Um, and the Australian Christian author, John Dixon, who wrote this book, Humil Humilitas, about humility, he uh, said that he epitomised the noble choice to forego status, deploy resources, and use influence for the good of others before himself. And there's this great anecdote about Sir Edmund Hillary, which sort of uh, summarises the beauty of his humility. Um, once when he returned to the Himalayas uh, for a, another trip and was visiting the Nepalese, he was at the kind of, you know, the foothills of, the, of um, Everest and some tourists spotted him and re realised who it was and they all wanted to go over and get a selfie or whatever they called it in the 1960s. And um, so um, he obliged and he stood there and they gave him an ice pick and so he stood there to look the part with the ice pick and, and you know, and they were taking the photo. And then this climber walked past, didn't realise it was Sir Edmund Hillary, and said, oh, mate, you're not holding the ice pick properly, <laughs> and told him to adjust the ice pick. And so Edmund Hillary went, oh, OK, and, and adjusted the ice pick, and then they took the photo. And, and that's the story. And what that story just kind of does, it's kind of a funny little story, is it shows how beautiful humility is and how unattractive pride is, doesn't it? Because as far as we're concerned, it doesn't matter how great that um, climber was that was walking past, his kind of arrogance and his pride to tell him what to do, you know, it kind of makes us go, oh, you know, that's a bit dumb. But, but Sir Edmund Hillary's humility in all of that makes us think, oh, what a great guy. Humility is beautiful. And if we at Mary Creek were a community of people pursuing humility, the overall effect would be that God would work through that and the other people in our church would also want to pursue humility. That's kind of a viral effect. There's an atmosphere of humility that would develop and that brings about change in people's hearts. When you're surrounded with, by people who embrace a certain way of living, you want to live that way too. When one person shows humility, it builds up the other people around them. And in fact, humility actually builds the community up in ways that we don't expect. Jim Collins, the author of um, Good to Great and uh, Built to Last, these are books about how to build um, organisations. He talked about CEOs who have humility are, more, are better leaders. So they're more persuasive, for a start, he said, they um, can gain the trust of their teams. They also um, can propel the people in their organisation towards the goals because prideful leaders discourage people from pursuing the goals because the teams just say, oh, the leader's just in it for himself. But a humble leader inspires people to go, yeah, I want to actually pursue the goal for its own sake. And uh, Jim Collins also noticed that humble leaders make their teams feel at ease because humble leaders aren't going to just snap when somebody makes a mistake, are they? And so people are more relaxed in the work workplace. And also, humility builds loyalty in your teams. So people are less critical of each other. 
So, so this culture of humility, and remember this is something that Paul's telling the church in Ephesians to pursue. This is just one of the five things. Um, it's something that's going to build trust, make people more goal-focused, more relaxed, more loyal. It's going to change the whole vibe of everyone. Now, if this is true for the corporate world, what does this mean for the church? It means a church that is living out the true unity that it has been called to by God will be a church that is humble. There is a bond that is caused, in part by your character being completely humble and then also gentle, if we were to explore that, patient bearing, and bearing one another with love. And you might be sitting there going, yeah, I'm really not a humble person. I know that I'm arrogant. I know that I'm full of pride. And uh, if you want to change, it's actually um, really hard to change. <laughs> it, it's not the sort of thing that you can just manufacture. You can't just sort of press a button and then suddenly go from being proud to humble. It's something that God grows in you. But here's four tips for how to go from being a proud person to a humble person. You can start by realising your pride. Right? Then you can confess your pride to God and to others. And you can constantly do that. Um, and then I think a life of prayer also. The more you pray, the more you move the focus in your life away from yourself to, to God. And that's a good move for a pr proud person. And then surround yourself with humble people. You could go home in your quiet time. You, you could reflect on that list in verse 2. Those, that list of characteristics, humility, gentleness, patience, mutual forbearing, and love. And you could see how those characteristics could grow in you and you could ask God to grow them in you. So, we've talked about pursuing godly character, but what about this, this second idea, that Christian unity grows out of the unity of God himself? God is both one and three. Now, this is a funky idea, it's a bit of theology, but it's good for us to see that there's actually big picture thinking. It's not just Jim Collins, how to build a community, how to build a CEO, be a good CEO kind of thinking here. This is actually um, the way the universe is constructed. Um, this new community that God has set up, the church, actually reflects the community and unity of God himself. Look at verse 3. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. The Holy Spirit imparts a supernatural unity to those who are members of the church, so they should live in unity with each other. That's the, that's the argument. And if they live at peace with one another, the unity of the Spirit will be preserved. And so it would be actually unnatural for the church to be divided in that respect. It's not who they really are. But there is more, verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Reminds me of a song. One love, one life, when it's one need in the night. It also reminds me of one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Um, it sounds a bit like a song, maybe because it's a creep. And he's ramming home the point that there is only one body, the church, because there is only one spirit. So, Jewish and Gentiles who believe in Jesus, slave and free, male and female, rich and poor, 
should all live together in perfect harmony because of the bond of the unity granted to them in the Holy Spirit. There is one hope, one faith, one baptism, because there is one Lord Jesus, one faith in Jesus, one baptism into Jesus. Our hope is for Jesus to return. It's all very Trinitarian, isn't it? Paul has talked about God the Holy Spirit and God the Son, and then in verse 6 he brings in God the Father, who is above all and through all and in all. The all is all Christians, one spiritual family. So if we say it in the reverse order to what Paul said it, the Father creates one family, the Lord Jesus creates one faith, hope and baptism, and the Holy Spirit creates one body. And this is why the unity of the church is at the heart of its very essence. Just as God cannot be separated into pieces, neither can the church. The 18th century American theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards preached in a sermon on 1 Corinthians 13 uh, these, these great words. He makes the point vividly. You've got to imagine I'm Jonathan Edwards. There, even in heaven, dwells the God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that is or ever was, proceeds. There dwells God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, united as one in infinitely dear and incomprehensible and mutual and eternal love. And there this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams, yea, in rivers of love and delight, and these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment, and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. The love between the Father, Son, and the Spirit flows out to us so that we too will express love for one another. And just as the three persons of the Trinity operate in perfect harmony, perfect unity, so too we who are made in the image of God long for that, that intimacy, that trust, that oneness, Ah, but you might be saying, what about church divisions? You say the church is not divided, can't be broken into pieces, but we've got Catholics and Anglicans and Baptists and um, all kinds of flavours and divisions within divisions and not even the, 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 the tribes of the Anglican church can get along with each other. And, and it's also a strange thing. It's a bit of an argument mistake here, isn't there, that Paul's saying that um, on the one hand, the Holy Spirit has created this one church, this unity in the church, and yet he's saying, so pursue unity. I mean, if the Holy Spirit has done it, why do you need to pursue it? This is because we need to think about the visible and the invisible church. You might think there's about 100 people here today, it's really a thousand. You just can't say the other 900. No. The invisible church are the combined children of God who will live one day with God in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. So all the people of God through all of, throughout all time. And then there's the visible church, the physical church, communities and structures that you can see, and they're not necessarily the same thing. Uh, this physical concrete church is the visual portrayal of the spiritual reality, but the visual image of the church is a poor reflection. So Paul is saying to the physical concrete church, live out this reality of who you really are, okay? 
pursue it. Think of it like this. It's like a family. Um, I'll make up a family. The Bartholomew family. I'm trying to think of a name. I didn't know anyone called Bartholomew. Claude and Sharon and their kids, Martha, William and Sebastian. Um, the Bartholomews are one unit, but they grow up and two of the kids, uh, uh, Martha and William, they have a falling out and they stop talking to each other and they move interstate and uh, Sebastian becomes an international tennis umpire and he's never around. And the kids um, don't really keep in contact with each other except for random Facebook posts. They don't even email or call. And we know the Bartholomew family and 25 years later, they don't really know what's going on in each other's lives and the parents are really upset because they don't even get to see their grandchildren. And we know this family and we say, well, they are family, aren't they? They're still family, even though well, how they're living, it sort of looks very fractured and broken down. And if we were to um, be Christians to them, we would say, pursue unity, pursue reconciliation, try and live out who you really are as a family. There's nothing that you can do to change the history that you are each other's mums and dads and children and that you share DNA. The family's not meant to be divided like this. We would urge them to maintain the unity of the family by means of the bond of peace. So in the same way, the church should pursue unity at all costs. It should make every effort, says Paul. Look in, to, in a concrete sense how you are in a spiritual sense. We can have differences of opinion, but we should all be keen to live out this unity that reflects the unity of, the, of God. And we keep pushing for this unity until we will experience it in the full, in the new heavens and the new earth, where there'll be no more economic or political divisions between nations, complete equality in the sexes and cultures, the children of God praising God in the city of God. So we've talked about how Christian unity flows out um, from who God is, but also previously to that, it comes about through pursuing God, the character. And there's a couple of implications for church life that I want to leave with us. First of all, we need to give people the best chance for changing. As you pursue humility, gentleness, forbearance and love, and uh, you pursue this unity, you need to allow the other people in, in our community who you might perceive to be struggling to live this out to actually change, for God to change them. It's easy for us to write our friends off as uh, in negative terms, to categorise them negatively. So you might de describe them as, well, they're never going to help around church because they're lazy, or they're lonely people, they're needy, or they're a bit selfish. They're not going to get on the morning tea roster, are they? They're self-obsessed, that's all they want to talk about is themselves. Bad listeners, arrogant and so on. But the Gospel says that no, Christians don't stay in that place. That God works in their hearts and builds God the character in them. And we need to give each other a chance in that respect. I had a friend at St Hills who I remember when he first came about over 10 years ago, he was a young adult and he had no friends, he'd been treated badly by his family, he couldn't look you in the eye, and also he'd learnt some bad habits about, about being a friend. He was a terrible friend. <laughs> he didn't know how to be a friend, and uh, it was a bit of an effort to be involved in his life. 
But he, he, he stayed as part of the church community, got involved in small groups and um, did develop some Christian friends over time. And God did change him. And 10 years went by and he started to smile and look you in the eye and he had friends. He knew, he started to really know that he was loved by God as a child of God. He grew in confidence. We could have written him off as a hopeless cause, but we did stick with him even though it seemed like a, a huge effort. This is the power of God. Another implication that flows out of this is that we need to pursue redemptive friendships. Um, we need to form redemptive friendships. What this is is friendships that are a positive discipleship influence on each other. We need to encourage each other um, towards these goals that Paul has set to the church in Ephesus. As an expression of our unity, we need to help each other live in a godly way. We should spur each other on to humility, gentleness, forbearance and love. And the flip side of this is if you want to experience change, God changing you, you can't be a solo Christian, right? In the film uh, about a boy based on the Nick Hornby book, Hugh Grant's character starts off as a rich, selfish, independent bloke in his 30s and he doesn't need anyone. And he says, in my opinion, all men are islands. I should do the Hugh Grant voice. I won't. And what's more... Now's the time to be one. This is an island age. 100 years ago, for instance, you had to depend upon other people, whereas now you see you can make yourself a little island paradise with the right supplies and, more importantly, the right attitude. You can be sun-drenched, tropical, a magnet for young Swedish tourists. The, f the sad fact is, like, like an island dweller, from time to time I had, I had to visit the mainland. Anyway, this film is about humanity's deep need for relationships and the conclusion is that they are worth pursuing. And he learns that through his friendship with that 12-year-old boy in the film, Nicholas. But this is also the conclusion of the Gospel. You can't be a solo Christian. You might be trying to write the script of your own life. You might be pursuing your own goals. But this is not the way to live the life worthy of the calling you have received. You've got to do this in community. Your life script, so to speak, needs to submit to God, to the, to the Bible, to God's story, and to the community of fallen people in your church. See, the problem with forming friendships at church is that we want them at one level, but also we don't want them at one level because we want them if they suit us, but not if they don't suit us. You know, We kind of try and avoid them if, if it's going to be painful or difficult or time-consuming. But we're called to love people who don't meet all our needs. This is true fellowship. It does strike me that there are obstacles holding us back from living out this community kind of thing that Paul's talking about. There are, there are, there are idols and obstacles, life choices that we've made that hold us back from pursuing this kind of unity that reflects God. I'll, I'll read out the list, see if this is true for you. The busyness of life, keeping relationships distant and casual. A total immersion in friendships that are activity and happiness based. A conscious avoidance of close relationships is too scary or messy. A formal commitment to church activities with no real connection to people. 
one-way pastoral relationships where you minister to others, but not let others minister to you. Self-centred relationships based around your felt needs and isolated just me and God faith or theology as a replacement for relationships, knowing God as a concept to study rather than the pursuit of God and his people. If one or more of these obstacles, if, if one or more of these obstacles are blocking you from participating in this community that God is calling us to, perhaps you could pray with me at the end of church and you could share it with your community group. This is going to require big decisions for, you, for us to live this out. So to end, what's the difference between church and community and our church community and other kinds of community? We can answer the question. It has a moral centre that is based on the gospel. It has a unity which is supernaturally linked to the family and unity of the triune God. This means when the church is living in the way that it has been called, the people who belong to it will be affected. Their characters will be shaped and they will feel a strong awareness of love and membership of the spiritual family. And members of the church will be able to travel together through life, supporting each other in hope for the day when Jesus will return and we will be able to live in perfect unity in the kingdom of heaven.